Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Robcast. This is episode 249, and it's called, Then We Will Be Like All the Other Nations. <laughs> you, you like that? I was looking for a nice, succinct, sparse title with just a few words. You know what I mean? Something that terse that gets right to the point of it. I like this one. Then we will be like all the other nations. Now, it's actually a direct quote from a very old, like 2,500, 3,000-year-old story found in the Hebrew Scriptures in the Bible. So uh, I want to take you into this story. I want to show you where this line, then we will be like all the other nations, comes from. And, and then what I actually want to do is I want to show you the story and show you what's happening in it. And we're only going to look at like a fragment of the story. Because to me, there's something really interesting when you just, when you enter into an old, old story, uh, if you go far enough in there, do you find yourself? If I go, if, if we look far enough into you, will we find us? That's the great mystery that happens across history and geographical spaces and time periods is you're hearing a story about them, but it's telling you something about you. Uh, a couple of things before we get into this. Uh, this week, the introduction to Joy Tour, I will be in um, San Francisco, Seattle, and Portland. And those cities are joy for me. You know, they're, they're joy anyway, but bringing this tour... Um, that will just, oh my goodness, that's going to be fantastic. And then end of July, I'll be speaking at the Trondheim Festival in uh, Norway. I'm doing this new thing on um, spirituality and quantum physics. And it, anyway, that's going to be a good times. And then an info for that, all of this is at my site, robbell.com. And then um, Denmark, uh, Saturday night, August 3rd, I'm doing um, an event in... I'll be speaking in Denmark and doing a Q&A and all that. But then uh, that night sold out, so a second night was added. So August 2nd and 3rd, an evening with Rob Bell, Copenhagen, Denmark, at the Jazz House Montmartre, and I think I'm pronouncing that right, um, Montmartre. And uh, as you know, I'm part Danish. So um, in many ways, my Danish friends, I'm coming home. <laughs> Honestly, I cannot wait to walk into that jazz house and grab the microphone and say, I am home. <laughs> oh, and then after that, um, we'll start the UK introduction to joy leg. So that will start in Bristol, go to London. I'm doing a venue there called Earth, and then um, Manchester, and then three nights in Edinburgh, Scotland at the Fringe Festival. That's all introduction to joy. So that's what we're doing this summer. At the end of the summer is the first of the next two days. So I've taken, I'm taking over the improv here in Los Angeles and doing a two-day workshop, one of them in August, one of them in October, for communicators on the art of communicating. Essentially, it's all about the creative process. How do you make stuff? Um, how do you take that stuff that's knocking, rattling around in your head and heart and actually give it shape and form and unleash it in the world. And uh, some of you who are coming have already been sending in emails about what you're working on, what you're stuck on, what your questions are. So I'm shaping the two days. Uh, I have all this new content and then I have the specific questions people who are coming are asking and I'm just putting it all in a Vitamix and there might even be some surprise guests. So uh, you can sign up for that and do get those spots. All that stuff is at robbell.com. Now, my friends, let us go way back and see if a fragment from a story from a couple thousand years ago, what it has to say to us now. Um, so a couple of thoughts before I read to you some of the text. Number one, uh, the political is the personal, and the personal is the political. So if you have a person, and this person has hopes, dreams, fears, things that agitate them, things they haven't examined, and then you put a whole group of people together, those people together are going to be a collective representation of what all those individuals are carrying around. So when you look at a nation and you talk about a nation and its ups and downs, its strengths and weaknesses, um, in many ways you can talk about a nation like 
a person. So the really, really interesting thing happening in the Bible is it's a story about a tribe, this Jewish tribe, these former slaves in Egypt who've been liberated. Uh, but you'll notice how many times when you're looking at their history, you find yourself thinking, wait, that's true about me. That's true about us. That's, that's true, period. There's something universal in that particular. So as I take you through this story, one of the things to keep thinking about is we're talking about a nation, uh, but where is the personal dimension of this? And then second, the universal needs a particular, which is why I find these stories so riveting. For example, somebody can say, we can talk about love, but that's just a nice, vague sort of universal idea that you need love and flesh and blood you need to see somebody love somebody. You need to give yourself to another to understand what love is. The universal needs a particular. It needs an incarnation. It needs flesh and blood. So when, when like you look at a story like this in the Bible, you're reading a particular story because uh, if you want to talk about all people, you have to talk about some people. If you want to talk about a love or a grace or justice for everybody— you have to start with love, justice, grace, compassion for somebody somewhere in some particular space and time. So this story is about these people who were slaves in Egypt. They've been liberated from their slavery. They've journeyed through the wilderness and made their way to a new land. And over and over and over again, the warnings are, Remember that you were once slaves. So welcome into your midst the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the refugee. Always remember where you were and how grace and liberation were extended to you. And so you now extend that to those who you come across. Now these people end up in this new land. They establish a capital in the city of Jerusalem. They build a new empire, and they literally build a temple to their God who liberated them from slavery using slave labor. So they have forgotten the story of where they came from. It would be like if there was a nation of immigrants who weren't extending the same grace and compassion and welcome and asylum to immigrants. Can you imagine such a thing? So over and over and over again, there is this warning, do not forget your roots or where you come from. And they don't. Essentially, this is the, the story of the entire Hebrew scriptures is these people forget where they're from. They end up, not only they've been liberated from slavery, they now have slaves who are building their empire. They become indifferent to the vulnerable and weak and poor in their midst. They build an empire of indifference, and the, the gap widens between rich and poor. And the global military superpower of the day, the Babylonians, come in and destroy them and haul them away into exile. And it's in exile, miles from home that they begin asking, why did this happen? And then they go back into their own story and recall, oh, we were warned about this. So the downfall of their nation, it was external. They were conquered by an external enemy. And here's, here's, here's the giant gold for us in this story. But the story is about how something began to fall apart on the inside. There's something about that greed, that entrenched injustice, that indifference to the widow, the orphan, and the refugee in their midst, that their empire essentially, it's like it rotted from the inside. It was conquered from the outside, but it deteriorated way earlier than that from the inside. Now, I'm jumping way ahead of the story, but... That gives you a bit of the context. So these people, so this is pre-exile. These people have, uh, they have this prophet named Samuel who is guiding them and leading them. 
And picture Gandalf meets Leonard Cohen. <laughs> oh, I am proud of that one. Gandalf meets Leonard Cohen. So Samuel is like this great prophet, guru, sage who has been leading them. And his sons turn out to be corrupt and horrific. So the elders of Israel gather together and come to Samuel and they say to him, you're old and your sons don't follow your ways. Now appoint us a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, listen to all the people are saying to you. It's not you they have rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. So listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Now that's a big chunk. Let's pull it apart a bit because this, stay with me here. There's a massive developmental leap happening here. These slaves are brought out of Egypt, and they're told in the wilderness, like Ten Commandments, Moses, Mount Sinai, they're given a new vision for how to be a people. Essentially, don't go and form a new Egypt that will oppress and enslave other people, but your job, your calling, your destiny, the invitation you have is to be a new kind of nation. Because at that time in that place, the job of a tribe was to conquer the other tribes, stay alive, protect your assets, build them up, build up your army, and conquer and dominate the other tribes. And what they're given is like a whole new vision for what it means to be a tribe. No, you won't be driven by greed and violence. The invitation for you is to be a new kind of tribe that exists to serve and help all the other tribes. So if you have the same power structures that everybody else has, where there's a really powerful leader and a group of elites who essentially oppress and control everybody else, that's nothing new. So the, the, if you heard of the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments were actually seen as a wedding ceremony between the divine and the human. It was a, a new stage of human consciousness. It was, how are you going to end these cycles of violence and oppression? There, what if there was a new tribe that didn't have those same structures? So the whole idea is, all along, their God is essentially saying, I'll lead you, and you won't look to a king who gives you very clear directions on what to do, you'll look to the divine presence within you each and within your midst. And you'll look to your own history. You'll look to your own liberation as a guide. We were liberated from our enslavement, so let's now extend this liberation to others. We received grace when we were powerless in our condition of enslavement, so we will now extend grace to others who are powerless in their enslavement. We were wandering in the wilderness and we found food. Food was provided for us, so we will now provide food for those who are wandering in the wilderness. Do you see how this works? This is a massive leap in how a people organize themselves. They have this destiny. One of the lines from Exodus is, you'll be a kingdom of priests, which means everybody will have a direct connection with the divine. Now, once again, this, this is old, old. I mean, this is thousands of years ago. But what you're looking for is you're looking for where's the new movement? Where's the new idea? Where is the expansion of consciousness, as you could say? And what's happening here is these people have within them this invitation to a new way of ordering themselves. That's what the, essentially the whole book of Leviticus is about, is here are the rituals to help you remember your own story of grace and love so that you can extend this grace and love to others. Here are rituals to help center you, 
to take this ideal and actually bring it into flesh and blood life, which uh, for all of us is the thing, right? You have the dreams, desires, hopes, ideals of who you want to be. And then you have who you are each day, the struggles, the sweat, the two steps forward, one step back, the, all the things we wish we could do, and yet uh, we fall flat on our face from time to time, correct? So essentially, these people are given a whole series of rituals. Here's how you take your highest hopes and desires for your life and actually bring them into flesh and blood. So when these people come to Samuel who have been given this imaginative vision for a whole new way to be a people, and they say, just give us a king like everybody else has. You see why it says Samuel is heartbroken, he's displeased, he's upset. He's like, oh, where is your imagination? Where is your new thinking? Where are your ideals? This was supposed to go into some new place. And now you look around and you just want to be like everybody else. And then uh, the storyteller here does this interesting thing with Samuel talking with God and uh, essentially... So by the way, those of you are like, wait, is that like historic or is that poetic or what is that? I would say, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, of course. The storyteller is taking all sorts of liberties. They're telling you a great story here about what, hap- what about these people. And essentially what they do is personify God as a conversation partner because it's always been in the Hebrew consciousness about a dialogue, about a back and forth uh, between the divine and the human. And so what you have here essentially is the God character here essentially says to, to uh Samuel, oh, these people, now they just want to be like the neighbors when they have this destiny to be something new. Uh, I, I, I was hoping they would innovate, but they're like, nah, that's kind of hard. <laughs> we would prefer to just to have, can we just be like everybody else? And then the God character essentially says to Samuel, it's not about you. It's not about you. Ever since they were liberated from slavery, they've uh, struggled. They've resisted. It's as if... Uh, God says, you know, you can get them out of Egypt, but it's hard to get the Egypt out of them. Uh, there's something um, there's something about the structure of that enslavement and almost the safety of that enslavement. They were slaves, but at least they had regular meals. And so they're freed. And as soon as it gets different, as soon as the unknown this new territory you are traversing, as soon as it gets difficult, there is a deep human response to revert to how it was. I'd rather have that old, narrow enslavement than this wide open, wild, terrifying unknown. This is why a lot of people uh, resist the hero's journey, whatever it looks like, however it comes to them. The unknown can be terrifying. Uh, Yeah, when you stay back, at least you have your meals, you have the roof over your head, but when you head out into the unknown, oftentimes those guarantees aren't there. When you were part of the tribe, uh, it may have been suffocating, but at least it was known and safe and secure. But when you head out... When the tribe, when you leave the tribe, when you have to break new ground, you often have to forego a lot of the comforts of the earlier chapter of your life. Ah, see what we're doing there, my friends? All of a sudden, we're talking about them, but we're talking about us. So there's this developmental leap and, and then you can look at it, especially those of you who've studied spiral dynamics or integral theory, there's actually a historic leap here from an organizing around a king, which is clear, the boundaries are set, the power structure is known, 
You get orders from the king and you do them. The rewards are clear. The punishments are clear. There's a lot of clarity there under the king. But now the invitation for these people is to move from orienting themselves around a king to around a living word, a text. Now, these living words, like uh, you think about Leviticus, love your neighbor, love your neighbor is going to be at the center, but love your neighbor is going to have to be interpreted. So this is what happens. You get a glimpse of a new future. Something opens up. You see something. It's beyond the life of the tribe that you come from, whether it's business, family, religion, education, whatever it is. You, you glimpse something, and you have to follow it. And so you do. And what that means at some level is you're leaving behind old ways of doing things, maybe even the tribe. Uh, this may be disrupting relationships that were once the closest relationships to you, but now you have to follow this new vision, uh, destiny, calling, whatever language you want to use for itch, nudge, the cloud has moved. There's all sorts of language for it. Generally, you have images and metaphors for it, uh, more than very specific language. But the thing is, when you head into that unknown, it requires way more patience, uh, interpretation, because before somebody else mapped the territory, you took orders from your boss, and your boss said, do this today. Okay, you were taught this is the system. Then you learned the system and executed within the system. The family said, these are the rules of the tribe. So you played the game according to the rules of the tribe. When you move beyond that into something new, you are now moving into territory that's way, way more ambiguous. It's way more messy because you've taken that ordering on yourself. In the previous chapter, somebody else did the ordering, you learned the ordering, and then you received the rewards, punishments, safety, security, stability based on staying within that. But when you move, into new territory, you take that ordering upon yourself. You start that new business. Well, now when you wake up in the morning, you don't have to be anywhere if you don't want to. All the rewards and punishments and all of it, you've just taken it all upon yourself. The consequences, whatever it is, it's all, uh, you, you're now bearing it yourself. And so you're free. But with that freedom comes all sorts of risk, all sorts of cost. That freedom is loaded with a world of other things. And so Samuel has continually been saying to these people, you have this new, you have a different calling, you have a new destiny, you have something new to give to the world. And what the people say is, no, uh, just give us a king like everybody else. And then uh, the divine voice says, okay, okay, let them have a king. Almost like they're not ready for this. Okay, we're not going to, why force people into something they're not ready for? But warn them, and I love this line, warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So it says, really, these people want the comfort and security of a king. They, they want all the safety of knowing that they just have to obey somebody. They'd prefer that external power structure rather than developing an internal intuitive guidance system. Okay, fine, but warn them. And then Samuel... I mean, if this was a movie, the spe this speech. So then Samuel uh, warns the people. He says, okay, fine. You want to be like everybody else? You want to turn your back on your destiny? You don't want to innovate? You don't want to do something new? Fine. 
This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He'll take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, the best of your vineyards, the best of your olive groves, and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. Notice the slave imagery. This is my insertion here, by the way, my commentary. Notice the use of the word slaves. That's like a huge, huge loaded word in this story. He will make you his slaves, and when that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king that you wanted, and God will not answer you on that day. <laughs> you want a king? Fine. Here's what it means when you get this king that you want. You were offered freedom. You would prefer the known to the unknown. You prefer enslavement to this new freedom, you really do want a king? Okay, this is what the king's gonna ask. And at the end, when he's taken everything from you, including your lives and made you slaves, and you cry out and say, oh God, how did this happen? God will not answer you on that day. But the people, and this is where the text, but the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out and go out before us and fight our battles. Seriously, they see all that and they're like, nope, nope, we'd prefer to have a king. So giant idea here, obvious idea. Some people would prefer a king. They'd prefer to take orders. They'd prefer the conformity. They'd prefer the oppression, the lies, the propaganda. Uh, Some people would prefer to check their brain at the door. Uh, Some people, even when warned of what this will mean, their response is, yeah, we'd just rather have that. We'd just rather have that. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you uh, know people who you, your heart breaks for them, for who they voted for, for the kind of communities they participate in, the worldviews they hold year after year, uh, the things they defend, um, the causes they give money to, and it just breaks your heart because you think, why, why, why? Uh, In this story... Uh, The word that's used sometimes is stiff-necked to describe that sort of defiant, you're given a vision of a whole new world. You're like, yeah, that sounds, nah. The unknown can be terrifying. So all of our frustration with everybody, everywhere, in every square inch of our lives, who, uh, that question, why don't they get it? Why don't they? I don't know. I don't know. And what's interesting here is, the storyteller seems to have zero interest in explaining why they would choose a king over a dynamic, hopeful, imaginative view of the future. Uh, the storyteller seems to have zero interest in why people stay stuck. Not interesting. Not a, This is what they want. And what's also interesting is the God character in the story is like, do you want to be miserable and oppressed? Because you can be. Because <laughs> you can be. Now, uh, the story under the story, of course, is when it comes to human beings, the divine has to play by all the same rules as everybody else. Love is like a level playing surface. You can't co-opt the human heart. Can't do it. So power essentially doesn't have much reach when it comes to the human heart. A human can be proud, stubborn, open, generous, kind, bitter. It's almost impervious to external uh, manipulations. 
and power games. So these people can just be like, yeah, yeah, you're right. That's probably good. Yeah, the king, the ki- a king might do that. Mm-hmm. And we still want a king. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. That that We could elect that person and they could be like that. Yeah, yeah, we'll take that. We'll take that over the unknown. We'll take that over the messiness of figuring it out, of listening to new reference points. Because this vision here, it's a radical idea, a people, a people who orient themselves around their own story. We were wandering slaves and we were shown compassion and mercy. So when we formulate our nation and build our nation, what we will build into our structures is compassion and grace for the needy because we remember our story. Yeah, so that's the whole, I mean, this is the giant theme of the Bible is how will you order yourselves? Will you order yourselves around the manipulation, oppression, and exploitation of the weak and vulnerable, or will you orient yourself around care for the most vulnerable? And literally, the whole story of conquest and exile is when you fail to organize yourselves around the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant in your midst, you can build up your big, powerful empire that serves the interests of a few elites, and you will get crushed even sooner. The whole thing will fall apart even sooner because everybody is connected with everybody else, and the destiny of everybody is inextricably intertwined with each other. That's why the Hebrew prophets come along, and they're like, wait, wait, you have this widening gap between rich and poor. You realize how bad that is for the rich? let alone the poor, everybody is going to go down because of this system not serving everybody well. So when you get to this passage, the measure of a nation is how it cares for the weak, the vulnerable, the immigrant, the refugee, those seeking asylum, the stranger who wanders into their midst. And these people are like, nah, We'd rather organize ourselves around how everybody else organizes themselves, which is a powerful king who will tell us what to do and will fight our battles. The messiness of interpretation, the, the awkward, ambiguous nature of listening to some other way of guiding ourselves. Nah, nah, that's just a little too, uh, that's just a little too difficult. We don't, we don't want to do that. Yeah. But by the way, you can see this around the world right now, this rise of far, far right, um, ultra-conservative leaders, dictators, fascists. Um, Honestly, this rise all around the world, whether it's Brazil, whether it's in Europe, uh, in many ways, you have the challenges of a new world, technology, uh, immigration patterns, outsourcing of jobs. The world is in major disruption and transition. And so you can see what's happening right now geopolitically is there are people who are stepping up and saying, there are new challenges. Let's rise to meet them. Okay, what does it mean to take care, better care of our earth? Because this is way beyond a crisis here. Uh, what does it mean to take better care of our earth? Well, okay, let's begin with like fossil fuels. Let's begin with carbon emissions. Let's begin, okay, let's do some sort of n- new deal there. We've done these sorts of things in the past. Okay, now, how do we think about our borders? Well, why are all these people trying to get into our country? Where are they coming from? Uh, is there any way we could help those places become more stable places that people didn't want to leave? Like asking much better questions which are the questions about how do we order the world in a better way so that we all thrive. And at the exact time, and it's going to be messy, and we're going to try a bunch of things, and probably not all of it's going to work. That's how it works when you're making your way. And we're going to have to listen to new points of reference. There's new data we need to look at. There's new experts we need to listen to. There are people who haven't had a voice that we're going to need to listen to because their voice is absolutely necessary for this moment. There's this whole new beautiful discussion taking place and experts and data and research and policies are all exploding. And then you also have people going, no, we want it how it was. 
we don't like this unknown. We would prefer just give us a version that we're familiar with. And if we have to put up with this and that and corruption and obstruction of justice and all sorts of nepotism, fine, fine. Just don't make us have to stretch. Just don't make us have to journey into the unknown with all of the unpredictability and instability that always comes with it. Yeah, so thousands of years ago, these people are given a new vision for how to be a tribe in the world. And what they're told is, now nah, we'd rather just be like the neighbors. Yeah, yeah. This, is, this works at a profoundly energetic level because of what it is. No, no. We don't want to go forward. We're looking around and we're seeing these people on either side of us, our neighbor. We just, just give us that. We just prefer to settle. We'll just stay here. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of this functions at an energetic. You can pick it up from a mile away when somebody's like, there's a new future. It's going to be really difficult and it's going to be, it's going to be so hard. And we're going to find new things together. We can do this. That's an energetic thing. Something within you goes, yes, yes. And then there are those who, nope, no, let's go backwards. Let's entrench, let's retreat. You can feel it in this passage. Samuel's heart's broken because the divine is a direction. The divine is movement. The divine is not static, but dynamic. The divine is what kind of universe are we living in? What is the nature of the world we're living in? Is it trapped, stuck, fixed, static, or is it unfolding and we can join that unfolding or resist it? Yeah, God's a direction, and the direction's only ever been forward. By the way, side note about neighbors. The more you live from your center, the less you look to your neighbors for direction. The more you live from your center, this was the invitation from Mount Sinai on with these people, the invitation with the Ten Commandments, the invitation was to be a people who embody a new divine ethic of justice and compassion for the world. So the only interesting thing all along is, who are we here to be? Who are we here to be? What is the destiny that we are stepping into? What is the calling that we have heard? What is the voice that has spoken that we are listening to? You have that. Every human has that. Yeah, that's the real thing, is to listen to who, who am I and who am I here to be? This is why you hear so many people now talking about intuition and you be you. My daughter said this the other day, you be you. <laughs> Uh, to her grandparents, I laughed so hard. I was a 10-year-old is using this phrase, UBU. Yeah, because uh, this is age-old wisdom. The more you live from your center, which will always be informed by the wisdom around you, the wisdom of the tribe, of course, then the less you're looking to say, but what about so-and-so? What about so-and-so? They do it this way. Because you're more and more grounded and centered in who you are. So uh, I know... I know, <laughs> so much here. So a couple things. Um, in some ways, this is a story about a failure of imagination. Imagination uh, is the engine of new life. Because you can see this, the thing you're in right now. You can see it, you can feel it. You, you can put your hands on it. It's kinesthetic. It's tactile. It's the, it's, the, it's the today that you're in. Imagination always has with it an element of unknown. You've imagined something, but it raises all these questions. Could we do that? Could we make that? Could we go there? Could I take that step? Could I try that? Imagination always takes you into the unknown and always raises all these questions that are just dying to be answered. And imagination will always bring with it some form of disruption because what imagination, when, ima when seeds of imagination get planted in your heart, they're always going to be fundamentally disruptive because imagination says to the current arrangement, we can do better. There's more. That's what imagination says. If it's a character in the play, it storms onto the stage or it just glides onto the stage and it says, there's more. Yeah, and this is incredibly disruptive. Because institutions, systems always bend towards their self-preservation 
and more is not a very welcomed word because it threatens whoever has their hand on the wheel, whatever power structure is in place. It will always involve more of you, more heart, more intellect, more resilience, more stamina. It'll always, more courage, more bravery. Yeah, so you can feel it in this passage. We want a king. If you get a king, this is what the king's going to do. He's going to, he's going to, He's going to bring your sons into the army. He's going to make your kids cook. He's going to end up making you... He's going to make you... Yeah, we'd rather have a king. We'd rather have a king. It's just so much neater and cleaner. And literally, the warning is like, no, it's not. And the people still... We want a king because then we will be like all the other nations. We don't want this path. Yeah. But if you choose this path, it'll always take more patience. Of course, always, innovation, imagination, always take incredible patience. You throw a hundred things against the wall to maybe see if a couple stick. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this hits home for me. Uh, I have entire books sitting on my computer that I've written that aren't good enough. Yeah, that's hours, days, months, years, throwing stuff against the wall, sweating it out, and then be like, no, it's not good enough. <laughs> it's just how it works. It's just how it works. Uh, imagination, a new future, always, always, always requires a complete rethinking of what failure even is. I even actually, even when I hear people use that word, I'm like, uh, nope, nope, nope. Because you move beyond the idea of failure. No, you know, it's not failure. It's we tried that and look what we learned. <laughs> yeah, failure. Where in the world is failure take? Trust. I mean, this was the great, the great thing happening in this text, going all the way back to Mount Sinai, is these people are invited to trust. They're invited to trust themselves. They're invited to trust the leading of spirit. That's very different than a king who's sitting there in flesh and blood telling giving you orders. They're invited to a whole higher way of organizing themselves. Uh, but they'd prefer to read from someone else's script. Nah, I don't want to write a new script. I'll just read somebody else's lines. I'll just live according to their assumptions, according to their rules. You can see this all the time with parents. They have uh, something within them knows that this kid, this kid of theirs, uh, is going to walk a different path. They know it. Parents know it. But they uh, don't have the guts sometimes just to let that kid walk their own path. And so they keep that. No, what will people, what will people think? We don't want people to think you're a loot. We, we, we got to make sure that you have all the right stuff on your whatever college application. Get! And so... The parent sacrifices the child's uniqueness and originality so that they won't get criticized for depriving their kid when what the kid needs is for the parent to say, what does this kid need? Who does this kid want to be in the world? And it might look completely different. And instead it's like, no, we'd rather have a king rule over us. And so the kid has to play by all the same rules and it crushes the kid's spirit and the kid is anxious and acting out because they're being forced into a mold that they don't fit in. Then the parent gets anxious so then the kid's responding to the kid's anxiety. But if they all together had the imagination to go, no, this kid doesn't need a king to rule over them. This kid has a destiny that's totally different. You see how this story here, man... Whew, that strikes something. The tears are there on that one for me. Wow. Yeah, you see what this passage is about. It's about trusting the uniquely divine path that each one of us has to walk. Yeah. And to, and to jam yourself in to some path that's already been walked a thousand times, let alone to make a kid 
walk some path that isn't theirs because, well, that's just keeps us respectable. No one will ask questions. No one will complain. The grandparents won't say anything. No one will challenge us. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's the warning in this passage. You really, you want the safety and security and respect and rewards that come from having a king? Great. Because in the end, that king is going to rob you of your life. You're here to make something new. You're here to walk your unique path. And you look around at what the neighbors have, and you decide, I'd rather just have the comfort and security of what the neighbors have. So-and-so does it that way. I'd rather just do it how she does it, and then I don't have to think and go through all the stress and ambiguity of actually discerning what my particular path is. Great, yeah, you can do that, and in the end, you'll lose your life. That's how it works. (laughs) That's essentially what Samuel says. Uh, You want a king because you think to fight your battles? Great. You'll end up slaves to this king. And the divine lets them. God is like, you want to be miserable? Fine. Yeah, fine. Fine, let them. It's almost like Samuel is like, don't you have lightning bolts? Or don't you have some like thing you can do here, right? It's like you can feel Samuel going, we're not just going to let this happen. These people are turning their back on the freedom and joy of a whole new kind of world. And it's like you, you almost expect Samuel going, you Wait, 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 wait. You're not going to let this happen. And uh, it's like the divine goes, well, when it comes to love, everybody's free. So, yeah, I am. But just warn them. Just kindly warn them. Was it solemnly is the word there? What's that? Yeah, solemnly warn them. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So it turns out this story about some people thousands of years ago has all sorts of edges for the world we live in. Their response is, then we will be like all the other nations. The problem is they have been called to not be like all the other nations. Yeah, so it's a warning. It's an invitation. It's an instructional <laughs> And to me, it, uh, it's also tremendous healing and comfort. Yeah, you want to go do the thing you're here to do? You uh, want to be who you're here to be? Yeah, it'll, it'll, it'll be cost. It'll take something out of you because the other path is easy. It has its own cost. So every single time you're in new territory and you're thinking, man, this is costing me something. Man, this is expensive. Man, this is taking everything out of me. Oh, here we go. You know what? You know what? What is this? 47 minutes? Here it is. Oh, got it. Sometimes I know what a Robcast is about, kind of. And I know that if I just jump into it, maybe by the end, there'll be something behind the thing. Here's the thing, my friends. Every one of you who's doing something new, Every one of you who's blazing a new trail, every one of you who has a kid and you're raising that kid in a new way to honor the uniqueness of that kid, every one of you who's doing some humanitarian work, you're teaching in new ways, healthcare, you've got a business, you're writing, whatever it is that you're doing that is new and you know it's new and it's cost you something. And you're thinking, why do I put myself through this? Why do I head into this territory when there aren't the boundaries that there used to be? I don't have the same set of rules. There isn't like a plaque on the wall telling me how to do it. And you think, this is kind of lonely. Actually, it's really lonely and it's frustrating. And I'm having to listen and discern and I'm, I'm making a mess of it. And the people who are back where I used to be are in that nice, safe system thinking I've lost my mind. So there's just the weird public, there's the relational, awkward, whatever, all that. And you're thinking, man, why all this cost? In this story, the warning is about the cost in staying back there. Yeah, of course there's cost going forward into the unknown. Hero's journey always has cost. This passage The brilliance of this passage, you see, oh, you want a king? You want to stay stuck back with everybody else? There's cost there, too. And that cost is your life. It's your vitality. It's your soul. Like he even says, you'll end up enslaved. 
Yeah, so which cost? Do you want to be alive on your path? And maybe there's like a little blood on the ground and you're a little woozy and you've you've lost a bunch of money and people don't understand, but you're also alive and you stayed true to who you are and it's messy and it's awkward, but it's you. So yeah, there's cost, but there's nothing compared to the cost of not being true to you. That cost, whatever you do, don't pay that cost. Yeah. So this becomes a really unexpected word of healing and hope for everybody who's like, no, I took the Sinai option. I took the sign. I took the imagination, the unknown. I took the leap forward. Yeah. Yeah. You'll see by the way, side note, uh, this, this, uh, You'll notice this with politicians right now. You you have politicians right now. You have these new, really exciting voices who are saying, perhaps we should think about it this way, or let's leave behind that entire way of framing that issue. And they get laughed at, and they produce a policy or a proposal, and everybody ridicules it. Um, but remember that the people who seem to be proposing the craziest stuff uh, and the system is like, what are you talking? That's ridiculous. Uh, remember that in four years from now and in eight years from now, those might be the ideas that we that save us. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, the unknown at first sounds completely insane until it's the wisest path. Yeah, that's, man, there's a lot going on there. Well, my friends, then we will be like all the other nations, or you just decide to follow that still small voice, that megaphone, however it comes to you, that says, no, there's more, there's a better way. And there, my friends, uh, was this a sermon? Let's, this was a sermon on an ancient biblical text that's loaded with hope and truth and warning and light and healing and imagination for us right here, right now. So may grace and peace be with you every step of the way.